Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. On today's show, I'm going to be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Coming up, we'll ask, is the Irish banking system broken? And we'll be analysing what's left of it in the wake of the departure of Ulster Bank and KBC. I'll be joined by Sean Keyes from The Currency. We'll be talking about everything from the two remaining pillar banks right through to the money lending sector. And Dublin Airport this week opened its third runway, but there was activity in Shannon also because the Shannon Airport Group had a big rebrand and we're going to be talking to the CEO there who's Mary Considine and I'll be asking her what are the opportunities to drive more air traffic and more passengers to the west. And finally, hope or hype. This week, the Thornish has said it will be about a decade before hydrogen energy is a fuel source here in Ireland. So I'll be talking to Hydrogen Ireland and they're going to give us their view on how long it will be before expectations actually meet the reality. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. And first up today... An energy star has exploded back onto the climate scene. It's hydrogen. Hydrogen fuel has zero CO2 carbon footprint and it offers possibilities that can help us to move away from traditional fuels, but it does bring its own challenges. Paul McCormick is a member of Hydrogen Ireland. He's also organiser of the first hydrogen conference, which is due to take place in Ireland in November. And he joins me now to discuss where we are and where we could be going with hydrogen in Ireland. Paul, you're very welcome to News Talk. Mandy, thank you very much indeed. Now, who is Hydrogen Ireland? Who do you represent and when were you set up and why? Hydrogen Ireland is an association of like-minded individuals drawn from across Ireland and beyond looking to propel hydrogen and clean hydrogen use in the energy systems of Ireland to give us a clean footprint and reduce our CO2 impact. It's drawn from industry, public and private, and it's a mixture of all different individuals in within that sphere, in the energy sector. Okay, so tell us why hydrogen is is such a clean energy and talk us through the different types of hydrogen that there is. There are a number of different colours of hydrogen depending on the source that it's coming from. Green hydrogen, the one that we are moving and and aiming to make that central to Ireland's energy equation, is hydrogen drawn from renewables. So it is a zero CO2 footprint. We take renewable power from wind, solar or bio and use that to split water, H2O, into the hydrogen oxygen constituents and then use hydrogen as that energy vector as part of the energy equation to meet Ireland's climate targets. But also importantly, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine to meet our energy crisis that we now face and that unprecedented challenge that we now must rise to. Yeah, and the green hydrogen then requires renewable energy to kind of, you know, fuel the the hydrogen itself um, if we don't have renewable energy if that's not moving forward at a pace can we move at scale for hydrogen development as we make the just transition to net zero we'll make, we will take advantage of many energy stages and energy vectors that will remove us from that dependence we have on fossil fuels so different types of hydrogen different types of lower carbon fuels can be used on that journey as long as the destination is net zero, it's going to take time to get to that because we just can't switch off our dependence on fossil fuels overnight. Mm. So as long as we keep continuing on the journey that the government has set out on to integrate more renewables, to get greener and use less fossil fuels in our energy cons- uh, consumption, we're on the right journey. And as long as we continue on that journey, 
and possibly accelerate it given the different opportunities that will come to table, we then can get to that destination. Right. Yeah, because it is a journey, you're right. But how are we placed to um, capitalise on the opportunities that might be out there for us in terms of hydrogen development? You know, where do the Irish government stand in terms of having a policy on this? Is there a regulatory framework that exists that will allow people to come in and invest in this area? The Climate Action Plan was released by the government last year and they're now out for consultation on the hydrogen strategy. Minister Ryan and his team have now gone into consultation to get feedback to develop a strategy that will move Ireland forward, bring Ireland up to speed within the zero carbon footprint and make sure that we take full advantage of all the renewables that we have at our our behest, both onshore and offshore, as we drive towards that zero CO2 to, to tackle our climate change, but also to become more energy independent and use the natural resources we have and not rest where we are at the minute as net energy importers. Mm. We could become energy independent over time and even export energy, given the natural resources that we have, and balance our living with nature and not become complete fossil fuel users all the time. Yeah, I mean, Ireland has the capacity to tap into uh, the potential that's there for sure. But I'm just trying to figure out if we don't have a policy and there's still no regulatory framework there, are there any individual hydrogen projects that are either operational here in Ireland now or coming on stream, forgive the pun, in the next year or so? There are many hydrogen projects in development and some on stream to be coming in the short term. And Mm. that includes the energy wind farm electrolyzer in Ballymena, it includes also the Hydrogen Valley work that's going on in Galway in the Hydrogen Hub. And that's the focus of our conference. It's about securing Ireland's green energy future. It's looking with the opportunities where industry and government work in partnership, where industry inform the strategy and government then develop the strategy that would lead us working in unison to get to the destination we require and to make sure that we reach our potential. can't be done on our own. It mm. can't be done individually. It's with government and business and academia all working in tandem and moving through that hydrogen and zero carbon learning curve as we move forward in in cohesion. And is there an appetite out there for investors, for large companies to come into Ireland and look at it? Are they waiting to see this, you know, this policy paper that we're about to produce and look at the regulatory framework? Is there an interest out there uh, from, from investors? There's a phenomenal interest in the green energy in Ireland and that's why we have over 300 members of Hydrogen Ireland, from the large multinationals down to the SMEs and individuals. We have Siemens, ESB and Gas Networks Ireland, the main sponsors in the conference in, in November, all looking to move that market forward, all looking at individual projects and partnership projects that are going to bring individual solutions to meet Ireland's cohesive need for a green energy future. As you mentioned earlier then, to look at how we become net independent. We have no more reliance on fossil fuels over time and no more energy imports. And then build to become a green destination of choice. As we move forward, it's not just about hydrogen, it's about the green economy and how we take full advantage of that to make sure Ireland can benefit not just from the energy benefits, but from the jobs benefits, the economic benefits and the environmental benefits. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Paul. What type of environment, uh, what type of employment um do you think could be created out of this? Uh, is there any kind of figures that you have where this could go? Um, and also, what type of workers are highly skilled workers who are working on the edge of existing energy industries kind of coming into this new sector if it moves forward at pace? 
global demand for hydrogen is forecast to reach 50 million tonnes by 2025. And the potential for that is up to 60% will be that will be green hydrogen. And if we get our message right now, we can become the test bed for that. We can also then help companies pivot from the old fossil fuel model they're currently dependent on to the new opportunities. And that has pivot and secure jobs, but also creates new jobs, new opportunities. And we're developing the skills in the skills base within Belfast Met, within NUIG and in, in DCU to develop the courses to retrain and upskill people to move towards the new green jobs, which will provide not just secure employment, but clean green employment long term. Mm. And then answer some of the, the short term problems we have, such as the Amber Alert that came out last week, is to look at those challenges that we have now but make sure we realise the long term opportunities And just in relation to the energy security issue we have at the moment and those amber alerts are there something that the hydrogen um, uh, industry at the moment can look at that might alleviate those problems for us providing more indigenous energy One of the biggest blockages we have is bringing in more renewables into the system because of the intermittency of renewables if we use hydrogen as a buffer, which would create greater storage opportunities and allow us to build up an energy reserve, we then would reduce the opportunity, reduce the, the chances of an amber alert, and then be able to look at the longer term and be able to progress that across the strategy the government will come out, and then look at that forecast and how we meet more and more renewables coming in, reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, and enjoy not just the green benefits, but the environmental and social benefits that it brings. Mm. So in theory, um, hydrogen can help a country like ours do three things, really. We can store a surplus of renewable powers, can help to decarbonise the economy and ultimately replace those old or traditional um, fuels that we've been using. But on that issue of storage, how do you think uh, the hydrogen industry could progress that quickly or could the hydrogen uh, industry progress that quickly? What's the timescale on that? As we move towards and meet the climate change targets 2030 and 2050, we can repurpose existing infrastructure, help industry move to the new opportunities and make sure we don't leave any stranded communities or infrastructure behind. And it's using what's already there, repurposing that, rebuilding and making sure all of our strategies are fit for the future, all of the infrastructure we put in is fit for the hydrogen future. And that's working hand in hand with the government. It's not going to happen overnight, but... As long as you continue to do the trajectory that we're on, we're reducing our fossil fuel dependence and increasing the green opportunity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Paul McCormick from Hydrogen Ireland. Paul, just um, another issue uh, that you raised there was, um, you know, the, the different ways that we could repurpose existing infrastructure to try and use those infrastructures as storage. What specifically are you talking about there? We look at the gas network infrastructure in Ireland. It's state-of-the-art. It's the best infrastructure across Europe. It's modern. It's fit for purpose. It's also fit for repurposing for using for hydrogen to inject hydrogen into the current natural gas and again decrease every molecule of fossil fuel we use by increasing the molecules of green hydrogen. That's a simple example of using the gas network. It's also working with ESB in that to bring more and more renewables into the grid network to improve the storage, improve the distribution, improve the use, and bring the existing infrastructure up to speed to handle that intermittency and overcome what I call those short-term challenges to realise the long-term opportunities. Build a new network that's there in place and replace that with the hydrogen. 
distribute the hydrogen across the different networks that we can infrastructure and build and replace our mobility. We already have buses in Dublin running on hydrogen as trials. Make sure we get the infrastructure to match that as the, the position has been rolled out and greater deployment then is, is being improved. And what's the time scale, um, Paul, in your view of when we would get to a situation where we'll see fleets like Dublin Bus, like on post, being run by hydrogen? If you had asked that question this time last year, I could say 15 to 20 years. But because of the crisis in the Ukraine, that is now being turbocharged and fast forwarded. We need to find solutions quicker. We need to build infrastructure faster and smoother to overcome our reliance on fossil fuels, to make sure we're not at somebody else's behest, we're in control of our own. And that will be reflected, I would say, in the government strategy where we need to move faster and make decisions quicker because we don't have time, we don't have space, and we also must tackle that climate challenge that we, we face. So are you confident that even though the government, the state, hasn't moved fast enough on renewable energy, so we're behind the curve there, are you, are you confident that like these crisis issues that have, have been thrown up by the Ukrainian war and the energy supply, that that will actually accelerate the hydrogen policy and the progression of hydrogen in Ireland? I think the challenges the government face are now being recognised and they're up to those challenges and that's where the minister and his team have brought the hydrogen strategy forward. It's out for consultation. It's not in isolation. It's part of a climate action plan. So it's being tackled in a sequential process. And it's not looking just at uh, issues in isolation. It's looking at that short, medium and long-term solutions that we require as a country. And the government now is getting behind that, recognising the challenges, but also recognising the opportunities this brings to not just the environment, but to the country as a whole. Well, Paul, we certainly have to watch this space for the progress that we'll make. Uh, that was Paul McCormick of Hydrogen Ireland. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Mandy, thank you very much indeed. And as you said, the conference November 22nd, 23rd, the Madison Blue Hotel in Dublin, Hydrogen Securing Ireland's Green Energy Future. Thank you very much indeed. All right, thanks, Paul. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, the Shannon Airport Group CEO tells us why if you're looking for a pain-free travel experience this year, then West is best. That's after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. You're welcome back. Now, this week, the Shannon Group unveiled a refresh of its corporate brand and forevermore it'll be known as the Shannon Airport Group, an indication perhaps of the strategic importance of the airport to the area. To tell us all about their plans for the future, I'm joined now by the CEO of the Shannon Airport Group, Mary Constantine. Mary, thanks very much. You're welcome to the show. Uh, delighted to be with you. Now, Mary... Can you just talk us through that rebrand? Why did you decide it was important to put airport into your corporate title? And what does it signify about the group's activity going forward? Well, we've, we've refreshed the brand as we were relooking at our strategic priorities in the aftermath of the pandemic and, and our focus really on recovery and growth going forward. And our new name, the Shannon Airport Group, I think what it does is reflect the central role of the airport so the airport and the immediate property portfolio surrounding the airport, the campus, is, is really a lifeblood to this region. And we wanted to reflect that in the name going forward and re-energise and refresh our brand to reflect that. Now, the group is obviously more than the airport itself, hence this rebrand. So tell us about the other type of activity that goes on within the umbrella of the group. What's the diversification of the brand? Well, within the Shannon Airport Group, we have the airport itself, as we said, very central to the group. 
And we then have the largest multi-sectorial business park outside of Dublin, and that's located in the immediate hinterland of the airport. Um, So we very much manage it as one campus. And that's home to over 180 companies. And there's a diverse range of activities going on right across the campus. I suppose first and foremost, aviation is really crucial um, to to the airport and, and to the region and Ireland as a whole. So we've about 80 aviation-related companies working within the, the Shannon cluster. Well, that's a and lot. Then, like 100, 180 companies, a lot. It must be a big employer in the region. Absolutely. Big, big employer. So of that, there's about 80 companies involved in aviation. Then we have a strong medical devices sector. We have financial services with traditional manufacturing. But a lot of high-end jobs. And right throughout the pandemic, we continue to invest in our property portfolio. That enables more companies to come into the region. So about 40% of Ireland's FDI is located within the Shannon catchment area. And there's a significant number of those in our properties. And just to give you an example, I suppose on the back of the investment that the Shannon Airport Group has made over the last number of years since we were formed, we have new industries in like Jaguar, Land Rover, Edward Life Sciences. These are all doing high-end R&D stuff. Miri GTX joined us during the height of the pandemic, again on the back of a a new property that we brought to market there, and they're doing gene therapy. So there's really, really exciting stuff happening in the zone. And you may have heard um, in recent weeks we had the Thornishta down to Shannon to open the new Future Mobility Campus Ireland Operations Centre. So again, very exciting, innovative work doing there, looking at future mobility the automotive sector, but also air mobility, if you think of drones. Um, you know, so, so that's the kind of stuff that's happening on, on our doorstep. You mentioned COVID, Mary, there, and obviously it was a crushing experience for the airline sector worldwide. Um, what's that like as a CEO waking up the morning after the Taoiseach has closed down the country? Like, how was that experience like for you? You seem to have been very productive in the COVID experience, but, you know, what is it like managing an airport in something like that? Well, I don't think any of us would have foreseen the impact of it or how long it would have continued for. So, you know, if I just speak for myself and for what we did in Shannon, um, we reacted very quickly. And I think that was very important in hindsight. Um, We took decisions early on really to protect the business. Some of them were hard decisions, but we had to take it to protect the business. it meant, you know, reduced working hours for staff. We had a voluntary severance scheme. Um, so, you know, obviously that impacted on staff. But I think a huge credit to our team. They worked with us. Um, and the yo-yo of restrictions, you know, opening up and then closing down again, that was very tough. Mm. So you're start, starting to scale up, and the next thing you're back in level three, four, or five. And we've nearly forgotten at this stage about the various levels. But they had a huge impact on the industry. But we remained open throughout, so we remained open 24-7. And that was important because it kept our cargo operators um, in, coming in and out of the airport. They brought, obviously, vital medical equipment, PPE. And important as well, we have 10 aircraft hangars on our airfields. You know, we have one of the largest MRO clusters in the country. Um, and it was important that they could continue to trade and operate, and they needed an operational airfield because... A lot of aircraft were parked up in Shannon during the pandemic. A lot of leasing companies took aircraft back and transitioned aircraft. And they, you know, so there was ongoing work in the 
maintenance, repair, overhaul, painting of aircraft. So it's important to, to facilitate and protect that business for the, for the long term. And the other thing, and you mentioned being productive, we decided as a team very early on that we needed to use the downtime. There was no scheduled services, but we wanted to um, keep people in meaningful employment. Can I just ask you about, about that yes. in particular? Because I'm interested in the staff. You know, Did you have to lay off numbers of staff during um, COVID? Uh, we saw that Dublin Airport did that and they suffered as a result. So was that your experience as well? Well, I think all everybody in the aviation sector was badly impacted and it went on so long, it, people had to make very difficult decisions. And we did have to temporarily lay off staff in the earlier days. But we were very grateful. The government supports were very important. So we were able to retain staff on the employment wage subsidy scheme. And we had staff on three, so they were working three days a week, availing of the scheme, um, which helped us to, to navigate through the crisis um, to keep our heads above water. Mm. And then those staff were engaged and still working with us, still on our books. We were able to ramp back up again. So that when, obviously when that, that, that obviously helped you to bounce back very readily. If you're just tuning in, this is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson and I'm talking to the CEO of the Shannon Airport Group, Mary Considine. I mentioned there the, the difficulties at, at Dublin Airport and as we've seen all summer long, it's been beset by troubles, whether it's... Um, Lack of staff, as I mentioned, the baggage issues, um, the waiting times. Um, do you feel that, and we, we've been asked this question a lot really over the summer, can Shannon Airport and the Shannon Airport Group now kind of alleviate some of the strain from Dublin? Um, and are there any engagements that you're working on currently to kind of direct more airlines and, and passenger traffic towards Shannon and away from Dublin? Well, I think first and foremost, we have the capacity to grow at Shannon. So that's really important. We have um, both the terminal capacity, we have the longest runway in the country, uh, we have the infrastructure in place, with the ability to grow. And we have seen a strong rebound in our passenger traffic this year. A couple of key markets for us, obviously the transatlantic, getting that daily transatlantic was absolutely critical. Um, not only for ourselves, but for the entire, you know, for the country mm. really, but we're the international gateway to the World Atlantic Way and tourism is, is a really important industry for Ireland. So that's really important. Ryanair, we were able to secure agreement with Ryanair early on to rebase their, their two aircraft in Shannon and we've 22 routes operating with them this summer. It's been very successful, very high load factors on those. So again, we would hope that, um, you know, Aer Lingus and Ryanair when they're looking at their route network for next year, they will have seen how successful Shannon was this year and that will encourage them to grow again. So we, we are constantly engaging with operators. We've united back on the transatlantic. We need to get Delta and American back. So again, if you look at what we have to offer and the fact that it's part of our value proposition is making it easier. So we've been able to get passengers through the terminal very quickly this year. It's been a really good experience for people. Um, I, we're not perfect. If there are any issues, we're able to react very, very quickly and address them. Uh, so I think o overall we have had very, very positive reaction from our consumers this year. 87% of, or 86% of the seat capacity in Ireland went into uh, Dublin. And then we have four airports on the western and southern seaboards uh, with 13, 14% of, of the seat capacity. So that is not normal if you look across Europe. So it's a, I think it's a real opportunity now. Government supported the industry, which is really important during the lockdown. 
But now it's about taking a step back and looking at the policies that are required to really rebalance the national landscape. Because government have a vision of a balanced national economy. If you look at their 2040 plans. I just wanted yeah. to, to ask you, like that, yeah. that, that's, that's great about the landscape and that's great about yeah, your experience of passenger numbers. But are you actively engaged with airlines trying to get them to come in more? How does that work? Do you use the governments to, to help you to do that? Or are you out there looking for more business for Shannon? Well, really, it's, it's up to ourselves because, first of all, first and foremost, we have to be able to demonstrate market demand to the airline that mm-hmm. they're going to make money on a route. And, and that's that's another um, yeah. side of this. The tourist numbers this summer, we've seen uh, certainly here in Dublin, they've bounced back the capacity numbers and all of the hotel rooms are back to, to pre-pandemic levels. How have things fared in the West of Ireland? Do you see a substantial uptick? Will you be able to present those passenger numbers for those airlines next year? We have. We've seen a very positive uh, rebound, much stronger than we were initially forecasting, which is really good. And I suppose working with partners like Tourism Ireland, for example, I'm, I'm going to the US in a couple of weeks' time uh, to, to meet the tour operators and the agents and, and the travel trade in both Boston and New York, because there are two key gateways. We'll be doing that in partnership with our, our key airlines, Aer Lingus and United, to really try and drive demand for the winter season. Yeah. Because it can be very seasonal. You know, we know there's demand during the peak summer months. It's about having that year-round business. And I think the fact that the airlines have done really well coming into Shannon this year will, will encourage them to put more capacity in. But we do know it's a volatile market. You know, could fuel prices, aviation fuel is, is increased exponentially. Mary, I just wanted to turn to that issue of the transatlantic um, relationship. They, we're a small open economy. Both Dublin and Shannon have that US pre-clearance, which is so important to us. How important is this to you? Is there any danger that the delays that we've seen experienced by US passengers coming into Dublin, um, or if you're not getting enough passengers through Shannon from the transatlantic market, is there any danger uh, that there'd be a risk that Ireland would lose them? Well, Shannon was the first airport uh, outside of the U.S., first airport in the world to have U.S. Uh, customs and border pre-clearance. And we've built on the back of that. Again, we're the only airport to now offer that to private corporate jets. So on the back of that, we have a very strong relationship with you, the U.S. Um, officials. They came to visit us. First of all, they remained in Shannon right throughout the pandemic, which was really good considering there was no terminal services. Uh, they, their senior people came to meet us and they're, they're very pleased with how things have rebounded in Shannon this year. So I'd be very confident that that's a long-term relationship, that they're very committed to Shannon. But we need to constantly work and improve things. And one of the things that we've done to encourage transatlantic services through Shannon is combined security measures. So rather than having to go through security again in CBP like you have to do in other airports, Again, we're the only airport that offers combined uh, security checks at central screening. So it means people only have to go through security once. And I've already mentioned our new equipment and how easy that is for people. So all of this thing saves time for the passenger, saves costs for airlines, and it makes it easier. So, But the transatlantic market, you're absolutely right, is it, uh, critical. It's critical for tourism, critical to support the foreign direct investment that is in this region for the people to get in and out, get their goods to market. It's ourselves that have to sit in front of the airline and convince them 
that the demand is there and they will make money on it. But we need all our stakeholders behind us mm. selling that message. Yeah, um, a fi- final question, Mary. Just wanted to ask you about that passenger experience. So you are trying to talk to somebody now who's thinking about booking something. Why is a passenger experience better going uh, to Shannon instead of maybe using something that's nearer in Dublin? What What would you say to someone who to try and attract them to, to book through Shannon as opposed to Dublin or Cork? Well, I suppose what I would say to people is is look at how easy it is to get to Shannon in the first place. So, you you know, you can drive, if you're living in Kildare or Portish, you can drive down the N7 and be in Shannon Airport as quick as you can be in, in any of the other airports. Uh, so, literally, our catchment area is much broader than what people would see as the traditional Shannon catchment area. You can park right outside the terminal. You're through security with the new investment we've made. Um, and indeed, if you're going transatlantic, you can be through the, the CBP checks. You can do all that in about 15, 20 minutes. So it's really easy. Again, our staff, because we have the new screen equipment, they're not asking you to remove your liquids and gels. So if you're a family of five and you have to open the bags and take out the liquids and gels and the laptops, you know, just the stress of it. So our staff are not asking you to do that. They're not taking your bottle of water off you. So they can engage with the, the passenger. They can help the passenger through. And people are anxious flying, and particularly the first time they're flying after maybe a break of two years. So it's about helping them making it easier and everybody in the Europe community is in is in that with us you know it's mm. not just our own staff it's all our handlers we see ourselves as an airport community to help the customer well it's, yeah. it's certainly it certainly sounds like a, a much easier uh, passenger experience but for now we'll have to leave it there that was Mary Considine who is CEO of the Shannon Airport Group Mary thank you very much for taking thank, the time to join thank us Thank you today. Mandy Thank you This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock Coming up next Is Irish banking broken and could money lenders be set to cash in on the cost of living crisis Find out after the break You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock now, for many, many years, banks have been very central to Irish communities, but the nature of our relationship with banks is changing dramatically as we all move to more towards a more virtual banking landscape. And sadly, the options for physical banking are now whittled down to two main players. So today, I want to take a look at the landscape around us and the competition, or lack of it. So here to discuss it all, I'm joined now by Sean Keith from The Currency. Sean, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Sean, I've just gone through the trauma of switching over from Ulster Bank to AIB. So I'm slightly scarred by all of this. But Ulster Bank and KBC both leaving the Irish market. Can you just set out for us what's left and where are Irish people doing their banking now in Ireland in 2022? Well, it shouldn't take too long. Uh, you've got Bank of Ireland, you've got AIB, you've got PTSB. For everyday banking, there are your options. I mean, you've got more options for borrowing, but for the full service deposits and the whole, on the, all the rest of it, you've got three options. Yeah, and you know, in addition to that, like lots and lots of people have now moved over to kind of virtual banking, haven't they? Lots of us using the likes of Revolut. Mm. Um, I saw a figure there a couple of months ago. We did a piece about it here. One point seven million people in Ireland now have Revolut accounts. So we see much more of that. Yeah, Revolut's been a massive hit here, I guess, because people, I guess, they don't, they haven't liked the banks for the last twelve years or so, you know, for obvious reasons. Mm. And the bank's products in terms of, you know, their actual experience of using the, using the apps and things like that is obviously pretty bad. So Revolut comes in, it's got a clean slate, nicely, nice app, and without even doing much marketing, it's um, Ireland's one of its best markets in Europe. And it's just been ticking off like wildfire, wildfire all through word of mouth. 
um, yeah, and I think I think Revolut is and 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 its and its peers like Monzo and and N twenty six are interesting. Like they show what you can do when you've got a clean slate. Mm. And the, the reason that the, the existing banks couldn't replicate that is because they've got all this legacy problems. They've got this old IT that goes back to God knows when. Literally, like some in the, some cases, fifties and sixties, and the whole the whole. Their, their whole IT stack is built on this really old technology and it's very, very difficult. Mm. Well, you know, think of it like Jenga. It's very difficult to just change. Take one piece out, out and the then bottom. the whole other, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's why you end up with the dodgy app. That's an interesting point about the legacy as well because that relationship of trust that you have to have with the bank, it's interesting that someone like Revolut can come in and just get that amount of customers and maybe, you know, starting afresh is the way to go. But Let's just look at how the banks, those two banks in particular, are performing against, say, other banks in Europe. Um, how do they stack up and do they operate anywhere else other than Ireland? Yeah, um, well, Bank of Ireland has always had a big UK business. Um, AIB is solely focused on Ireland. And in terms of how they perform, I guess it depends on when you start the comparison. Um, if you start the comparison, say, at something like two years ago, which is sort of around the bottom of of the market in 2020. Since then, the Irish banks have done extremely well and they've outperformed the rest of the European industry. So, if you Why, start, why is that? Why? Oh, it's, well, okay, it's, it's not that complicated, actually. It's because the Irish banks... I'll, I'll explain it by going back a little bit further. If you had started your comparison at the beginning of, let's say, the beginning of 2020 rather than the summer of 2020, uh, Irish banks, what, what happened then was they crashed much harder than the rest of the European industry. And then when the recovery happened, they recovered much faster. So that, that says something about it. They're, they're more volatile. And, and, and was, so 2020 was a massive economic shock for all of us. So were the reasons that they were good at dealing with that massive economic shock because they had learnings from the previous crash? Did they take any of those and apply great new principles? I suppose you could say that because um, they, they, they had their arm twisted by, by, um, by regulations that were imposed on them after the crash. So they, they so... The way the regulation works is that the ECB is like the regulator and they go around to all the banks around Europe and they give them their own like just um, tailored risk model. And they say, this is this is what, this Ireland is this risky, you've got to be this careful roughly. So basically the Irish banks, their their risk models are extremely uh, conservative. They are not allowed to take very much risk. And I mean, I'm not sure that that's the, but that that's a factor in, in their performance and everything like that. But I'm not sure it's the reason why they've kind of outperformed in recent in recent in the last two years. I think that's probably more to do with the fact that Irish banks are really heavily exposed to the the lending aspect of banking, and other banks are kind of more diversified. And what percentage would there be in terms of lending in Irish banks, and how does that compare in, in a European scale, or can you compare it even? It's it's in the 70s, I believe. It differs by bank, bank by bank, but Irish banks makes around 70-something percent of their profits from lending. It's high, is it? That's, well, it, it is. European banks would make, I think it's around 52% or something like that. So there's a big difference. And what that means is, when the, 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 the environment and the climate in Europe is bad for lending, Irish banks crash hard, like mm. in 2020. Mm. When the climate improves, Irish banks take off. Whereas European banks are more steady eddies. They're making money from bits of trading, bits of this, bits, bits of that. So what would happen to um, a portfolio like that in a situation where inflation is rising, as it is now, and interest rates are rising and there's a cost of living crisis? Could there be some bad news on the horizon for them? For the Irish banks... Um, yeah, it's it's it, they're they're. I, th- I think most uh, most of us will be losers from 
the coming crisis because mm. it's sort of it's multifaceted. Yeah, you know, it's there's, it's coming at us from there's inflation, but it's the then the reaction to kill the inflation is is um, rates going up. The, the I mean, okay, rates going up can be either good or bad for banks, but in this context, when what, what rates going up means is it's kind of choking off demand in the economy, mm. and that's not great for banks either. So. Um, I think if you if you were just if you were to compare banks to other stocks, they're not the worst position to be in in this scenario. But it's 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 not a good time in general. No, no. no. So just about uh, the the lack of competition. So we're a burgeoning burgeoning economy. We're doing quite well. We're kind of outlier in Europe. What is it that stops a new entrant coming in? Why is the environment here and not something that somebody would look at and say? relatively stable economy doing well let's get into that market there are well the first factor is as i as i said the european banking the the european banking authority which is the banking regulator they base their they think ireland's a very risky place still yes they 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 base their assessment of how risky ireland is on the last say, 15 years when everything went wrong so they think Ireland and, and also Greece are sort of especially risky. And they say, okay, if you're going to be a bank in Ireland, that means you have to set aside a lot of capital for every bit of lending that you do. And that's just like a headwind in terms of making money. And that's like, it's really, it's it's the opposite of what banks want, want to see. So anybody coming in, it doesn't matter if they've got a clean slate, if they're the best bank in the world, if there's JP Morgan coming over from the States to say, oh, we'd love to set up in Ireland. The rules say you, you have to abide by the, the Irish, you know, these Irish risk models, and you're not. It's going to be a, a drag on your profitability. So they're very onerous, and that would maybe prevent someone coming here. And that's understandable. Yeah. Um, the lack of competition, then, though, um, that's that's sort of feeding into the legacy of um, the crash again. Not just something here in Ireland, but the ECB still maintained those standards for us, and, mm-hmm. and so that might prevent an interest. Um, Online banking there, we, we, we mentioned, is is much more prevalent now um, and we're being pushed more and more away from that traditional uh, banking model. Is it inevitable that those banks that are physical banks will mm. become smaller and smaller, will all eventually divert to online or will there always be a place for the Bank of Ireland and, and AIBs in, in our model? Well, there's, there's two questions in there. One is is like branches, right? And so the likes of it, will AAB and Bank of Ireland keep their physical branches? And the, the the big trend all across the world, all across Europe, is for like far fewer branches than there ever were. And the Irish banks, even though they get a lot of stick for it, um, they've actually been much slower than most other places to actually shut their branches. There's a lot more branch co- branch closures. I would say coming. And we saw AIB trying to do just that and a big backlash against mm. them. So in one sense, you know, the public are getting what they want, but AIB are not getting the business model that they say they need. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm talking to Sean Keyes of The Currency about the state of Irish banking. Sean, that closure of Ulster Bank and KBC, just want to look at it from the customer consumer's perspective. What happens to the loan books of those banks? Where do they go and, and What's the what do what do people inherit? Can they expect any change? The, the loan books have been divide, divvied up between um, Bank of Ireland and AIB, and then some have been sold on to third party funds. And I think what you would expect as a borrower is that your like your position shouldn't change very much. Um, for depositors, are the one you know your your bank account. That's different. You you, you know. 
um, you basically have the right to do what you want. You can move, you can't, no, no bank can tell you that you have to deposit money with them. Mm. So deposits work, are going to sort of gra- gradually end up wherever they want to go. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's a very, the process, as, as I think we spoke before, the process of actually moving those across is extremely laborious behind the scenes. It's really slow, very frustrating. I know a lot of businesses and a lot of farmers in particular have had terrible, terrible trouble waiting to see or hear if they're going to get their overdrafts next year, yeah. which is essential to their business. But because of this incredible this incredible administrative like hold up, they're still not getting answers and it's it's incredibly frustrating for them. You know, it, it is incredibly frustrating uh, to, to try and navigate that uh, system. It's not for the faint hearted. What about the other providers like on post and credit unions? Is there any sense um, that they'll progress towards becoming more like second tier banks, if you like. I know the government are doing a review at the moment. Do you think that there's any strategy behind trying to develop a banking system as opposed to allowing one to evolve? Because we're sort of getting there by default rather than something that's designed. Yeah, it, 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 it all comes back to this regulation mm. piece. It's very, it's very difficult to do. You know, Unpost can't just... For, well, first, Unpost would need to do two things. It would need to gather a whole ton of deposits, which, which in fairness it already has. Um, it needs to gather deposits and then start laying them out. That's the basic banking business model. Um, but to do it profitably in Ireland, you have to fit with these risk models. And even if you're a new entrant, you have to fit with the risk models. So it's not, even if you're like Unpost, you've got all these deposits burning a hole in your pocket. Mm. It's very difficult to lend them out profitably. And then for the, it's, what's interesting then is for the likes of Revolut, and N26, which have, you know, customers love them. They've got one, whatever it is, 1.4 billion, 1.6 billion people have them in their in their phones. But what they don't see is that people don't put in a lot of money into their Revolut accounts. Mm, it's you just know, transactional, isn't it? Yeah, they yeah. use it for their coffees and things like that. And that has a big knock-on effect for Revolut's business model because the whole bit banking business model is you get deposits in really cheaply. People just lend, basically lend the banks money for almost nothing. Then the banks take that, say, thank you very much, and they loan it out on themselves for mortgages and they keep the difference. Mm. Revolut has all these users and lots of goodwill, but it doesn't have a big massive balance sheet of people depositing all their funds with them. And that stops them from get into the, where the, the real money in banking is, which yeah. is lending. And then the credit unions have lots of money on deposit, but they're not lending as much as they were before. Well, the credit, yeah, the credit unions, I mean, they've got a similar problem, I guess, to the to um, the, the other legacy Irish banks, which is the costs are very high and it's sort of not a, it's not a very efficient business. Yeah. Um, I wanted to turn to the issue of running the banks themselves because Francesca McDonough will leave Bank of Ireland soon, take up that role of uh, of COO in Credit Suisse. Um, her departure has largely been um, kind of attributed to the cap on paying bonuses that exists in Irish financial institutions. Do you think that um, it's time to relook at that policy? I'm in the minority, but I think we should. And it's it's because we're bank shareholders. You know, we own 70 or 60 odd percent of AIB. Um, I haven't got the figures at my fingertips, but it's worth several billion. To get, if we, if we realise the full value of that, it's, it, should, it could be worth many more billions. Like there's, the difference between a very, uh, an optimally run AIB where everything is flying it and everything is working really well and an AIB that's sort of languishing and not doing great is like many, many billions for the taxpayer and, you know, many, many billions goes a long way. And I mean, we there is a sort of a, a kind of a, a, a justice in capping banker pay. But I think more important is to like get 
maximize the value of these banks, get them off the national balance sheet, use the money for all the other things we need it for. Mm. And then, and then the, obviously the question then becomes like, well, okay, fair enough. If, even if we accept that premise, does raising banker pay actually result in better run banks? That's debatable, but I'm, I, I do believe it's true. Well, you're right. Like, look, at the bottom line of all of this, it's a business. And we as taxpayers should want to realise the best for that business. But the problem is the legacy of the crash, you know, forces us to to react to things like the closure of the bank, the branches, like uh, the salaries in a, in a particular way. And that's mm. not going to go away, I don't think, anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. And Sean, tell us, is there a prevalence of money lenders in the Irish market? I know that there's it's a there's a growth industry in like commercial alternative commercial money lenders. Mm. So there's all sorts of companies that have popped up in Ireland, and they will lend to risky projects, and and um, because that's something that the banks aren't doing. The government are engaged in a review of banking. What do you see that delivering? Is that um, an attempt to try and reshape the landscape, to try and attract more people here? Do you think that they're happy just to continue operating the way the way that we're going? Is there any ambition behind what they're doing? I think that the government, it, it was it was happy to be able to build PTSB up into a third pillar bank, and for PTSB to take on some of some of those the loan books that were knocking around. But I think that the government's real interest is in getting rid of AIB. You know, really? that's that's well, it's 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 a major interest of it, absolutely, because that you know the like as you okay, so we we had the the controversy over the summer over branch closures, right? That was, you know, the Leitrim GEA club is tweeting it out. Next, the story is a, a slow burner over the course of several days. It picks up. And then you have, you know, TDs storming AIB offices and making demands and, and, and their demands being met. You know, it's 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 a very uncomfortable position for a government to be... Inserted into the banking yeah, if they don't want to be there. It doesn't want to be there. It doesn't need that hassle. I mean, it doesn't, like, you know, no finance minister wants to be saying, making the kind of... <laughs> cold-blooded arguments that I'm making where it's like, well, you know, it's not economical to have these rural post offices or these these these, these rural um, these rural banks. You know, that's that's a terrible argument for a politician to be making. They don't want to be involved in that. They don't want to be running banks. They want to just get the money and use it for the things that the state needs. I think that's the, the banks, or that's the government, excuse me, primary interest in the banking industry at the moment. Yeah, and so long as the taxpayer is still involved in them, they can't do that. So that's a, a lose-lose uh, position for them to be in. They don't want to absolutely to maintain that. Okay, um, well, thank you for your insight, Sean. They're uh, enlightening as always. For now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Sean Case of The Currency. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mali. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, if you've ever woke up on a Monday morning and longed for the Friday evening, then tune in because a new book called Surviving the Daily Grind is out next week and I'll be joined by its author, Philip Coogan, to give us all the tips on how to get through the week. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.